0: Hi, from Sinai Temple, it's Rabbi on the Sidelines with Rabbi Erez Sherman. This morning we are joined by USA Today journalists, follows the Dallas Cowboys of the National Football League, and today is also Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Our next guest, Jory Epstein, is also the new author of a Holocaust memoir by Max Glauben called The Upstander. The Upstander just came out this week. And we look forward to commemorating this special day, speaking about faith in sports and how they intersect. Jory, it's so great to have you. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Rabbi. i thrilled to be here.
0: Yes. So um, your journey is quite the journey, not just through sports, but through faith. And you have interviewed basically everybody within the Dallas Cowboys organization was watching some clips over this past week. Jerry Jones, basically a weekly interview for you. Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith. What's amazing, what I saw, is the background that I actually see that you have there as well. The background that you have, and not just your amazing book, The Upstanders, which we'll speak about shortly, but Talmud's, Rabbinic tradition, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin's book, Jewish Literacy. Tell us why you choose this background when you're also speaking to NFL athletes and world-famous sports legends, faith and sports, how do they intersect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, Judaism, Jewish tradition and Jewish learning is who I am. And I wanna be authentic in my interviews. I think no matter who you're talking to, whether it's Max, the Holocaust survivor, whose memoir I just published, the athletes I work with or or other communities whose stories I've had the privilege to tell, the more authentic you are and the more we are ourselves, the more they trust you. Um, Because you don't have something to hide it. And this is who I am. Judaism is what I love. It's what animates me. um, And it's really, really meaningful. And so I think that um, besides the fact that just in COVID, like when I was trying to make a background, those were the books that happened to be around. (laughs) I think also, like, I love embracing it. And I think that it's such a beautiful opportunity I have to embrace my Judaism with this platform. And I want to make sure I'm always uh, making a kiddish Hashem with that.
0: So I think what you're telling me is that behind me, I should also hang up my Carmelo Anthony poster. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Okay. It's going up tomorrow for sure. <laughs> um, based on those books behind you, I know those just aren't for show, but they're books that you study and really take into your life. I don't get to ask many journalists this question. You know, I've had some amazing journalists within the sports world on this uh, podcast over the last few months, and we talk about faith and their experiences through faith and how often they're separate. But you actually, we just got a comment from Avi Mitzner, who I ran the Jerusalem Marathon with. Avi, it's good to see you joining us, member of Sharit Israel and ritual director, who said, you're an excellent Torah and Haftor reader. So within that Torah and that body of...
1: Avi, an excellent Torah and Haftor reader himself.
0: Yes, that is very true. Um, Within that tradition, do you have either a favorite story within our Torah, the rabbinic tradition, a favorite pasuk. I know you told me there's many to choose from, but if you had to choose a a top one to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I remember being on a BBYO program between junior and senior year of high school, and they posed one of the classic questions of like, if you could have anyone in the Jewish world for dinner, who would it be? And I think dead or alive was the criteria. So we were getting like Adam Sandler, different people in like the last 100 years, and I was like, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, like definitely yes. wanna have dinner with him. And I just absolutely love his story in the Talmud where to make a long story short to medium, um, after he does a favor for Vespasian, who's the emperor, Vespasian says, I will grant you what you want. One of the things that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says is yavne de give me the city of Yavna and its sages. And this was at a crucial time in Jewish history when the temple was about to be destroyed And Rav Ben Benzaka wasn't concerned about this building, which, again, not to downplay the Beit HaMikdash, it's just a building, but he wasn't about (laughs) it. He was like, we need to keep our Jewish tradition and our intellectual legacy alive. And that was a priority. And that just totally speaks to me. Um, Also love that the high school I attended is actually Avna. I think it's such a beautiful name for an educational institution. But I just love what that story says about what is the priority in Judaism and for our rabbinic tradition, going back centuries and millennia.
0: So let's take that principle of priority. How does that principle then go in when you're writing for the USA Today? I'm not sure if you've ever shared the Yochanan ben Zakeh story with Troy Aikman. I didn't see that yet, <laughs> but seriously, those principles are in your mind. You're living it every day. How does that then translate into what you are doing on the field?
1: It is. I mean, I think that I, mean, I went to Jewish day school all my life through high school, grew up in a very committed and loving Jewish home. Uh, Jewish schools that nurtured, and I think what they did is they gave me this strong identity of who I am. They gave me this moral compass, and I always say one of the reasons I'm so passionate about Jewish day school is not just about the knowledge you learn, but about this like moral imperative that we are taught and that we instill in our children, and God willing, one day when I have children, I'll be able to instill in mine, Um, and I think that that understanding of humanity, that understanding of critical thinking, that understanding of tikkun olam, that really guides my reporting and my storytelling. So there are some fun some fun moments through the years. So I'll be in Cowboys locker room and the Torah will come up. And I don't even remember. Oh, I think it was Hebrew came up one time with a couple of players. And they're like, you speak Hebrew? <laughs> they than Latin, right? Like the language the Torah was written in. I think Amari Cooper, the receiver on the Cowboys, had said that a couple of years ago. So there are moments when they directly come up. But I think even more so um, – it just guides who I am and what I care about.
0: That's amazing, because when you spoke about Tikkun Olam and bringing that value in, and in fact, some other of our guests, uh, specifically Dan Schulman from ESPN, who's been to the Maccabi Games, and um, he really actually separates those two things. Um, but you, I, I just saw an interview of you with uh, Jerry Jones, and you spoke about him donating $20 million to the National Medal of Honor Museum. Um, and when we speak about Tikkun Olam, right, we hear Jerry Jones, who he wants to draft and all the craziness within the sports world, but then you bring to light those values that he brings. Tell us a little bit about your interaction with the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, uh, growing up as an Eagles fan. It's a little difficult to uh, uh, have this conversation. But when I saw that and see what you're bringing out, tell us what that meant, not just to the Cowboys, but to the larger world in terms of what he and the Cowboys organization does.
1: Yeah, it was interesting with the National Medal of Honor Museum story I worked on because a lot of the things that that Jerry and his daughter Charlotte Jones, who was part of that interview for a portion of it as well, were saying, I was like, these are the messages I'm trying to convey with this book. I've got the upstander coming out. And the idea was you take these moments in history and in our heritage, legacy, national culture where people really exhibited the best of what we are about in moments that really tested them. And you say, how can we remember those stories, remember the sacrifice and use it to build a stronger, better future. Um, and that's what they were trying to do with the national medal, medal of honor museum. And I think that uh, kind of what we were talking about with understanding the humanity. And I almost feel like it's an, in, in Judaism, that idea of like, we're all created in the image of God. And like, we've all got that godliness and in, in ourselves. And, and we need to find that in other people. And I think that, um, I don't know if this is giving Jerry too much credit, but I think he does that in some ways where I have never been around him in an interview session or seeing him, how he treats the people who works for him where he doesn't just have such a genuine capacity to understand and care for their humanity. And I mean, he'll look you in the eye when he answers your questions and he'll give you a thoughtful response. And we certainly come from different backgrounds, but that's something I appreciate about how he
0: operates. So our tradition says, that we should only go up in holiness and not down. So we're going to start with the mundane, which is sports and football, and we'll get to the Kodesh in terms of Max Glauben in a minute. Here's an interview that we're going to share uh, with you and Troy Aikman. So we'll watch this for a moment, and then we'll have a chance to ask a question.
1: Now that we've seen the six and 10 years, some of the injuries and the lack of depth, where would you rank the Cowboys talent this year from one to 32?
0: They're a more talented team, certainly, than what their record indicated this year. Now, there were a lot of reasons for that. They had a number of injuries, and uh, I think there are some holes that, they, uh, that, that they'll that they need to address. They know that uh, through free agency and through the draft. But overall, uh, I just don't believe that this is – now, it, when healthy, I just don't believe that this is a team that's in a rebuilding mode. So uh, draft's coming up April 28th. What do you have for us? What do we see for the Dallas Cowboys?
1: I mean, it would be in their best interest to upgrade their secondary. I would never put it past Jerry Jones and the Cowboys to go offense again like they did with CeeDee Lamb last year on the 17th pick. Um, but they're, they really need help in their secondary. They could use some help run stopping as well. So if I were them, I'm taking one of the cornerbacks. That is, at that point, plus when you've got a draft where so many of the picks before them are going to be quarterbacks, offensive linemen, et cetera, they can really get the cream of the crop defensively. But they like to make a splash, so we'll see.
0: <laughs> nice. Now, let's talk about your sports background. You grew up in Dallas, in Dallas, Texas, Sherry, Israel, of course, in the synagogue, but you're now covering your hometown team. What was the passion of sports? What was the inspiration as a as, as a young kid? And when did you realize, like, I got this. I can do this.
1: So the funny thing is, I loved playing sports growing up. I mean, I played basketball, volleyball, ran track for like the one semester that my day school had it, um, all of those things, but I really didn't follow sports very much. Like, I'm not sure I ever, I I guess I watched like the Mavs championship runs like a couple times or I'd get the updates at camp, but I really wasn't a big sports fan and certainly not a football fan. I didn't know the, I didn't start learning the rules of football until I got to college. Oh my God. Uh, so the irony of it is like this was not my goal or dream or passion, even though I appreciate what sports can give us. Um, it was kind of a roundabout way where I got to UT. I wanted to work for the school newspaper. I knew I loved writing. I considered working for the news department, and then they were like, "Great, anytime news breaks, you leave class and you go report it." And I'm like, "I'm not doing that. I love class." And then so- I was, I'll work for the opinion section. My sister had done that, I thought it would be interesting, but I'm like, I just showed up on this campus, like, who am I to opine about what's going on here? So it was almost a scheduling thing that got me into sports, that I'm like, well, this kind of works with, like, the other things I'm trying to balance in my life. Um, And then I started working for the sports department of the Daily Texan, which is UT Student Newspaper. And I wrote a couple features and realized that writing about sports, and I think this is why fans love it too, but this is why I love it as a writer, you really get into all parts of life. So I was writing about, I mean, I'm writing about social justice, mental health, labor issues, medicine, um, what it takes to work together as a team and put... Um, group above our, our, us as individuals. And I think I just realized that it was an incredible platform to just try and better understand humanity and teach it to my readers. But then they read it because they think they're reading about their football team. Uh, yes. And I kept going with it. Um, so, and, then, and then UT actually had a partnership with Sports Illustrated where every semester they sent one student to New York. And I found out about that to work with oh. Sports Illustrated. So I found out about that my freshman year. And I'm like, I want to do that my junior year when some people were planning to go abroad, like what do I need to do to be competitive for it? So I kind of worked through that. And then it was funny, my senior year when I was still deciding whether I was gonna go to law school or go into sports journalism, I remember sitting at Shared Israel at Kiddish lunch one day, talking to my Kiddush
0: uncle. lunch, one day that'll be back.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, I know, Kiddish lunch. Talking to my uncle who's never shy on his advice and him being like, you can go to law school anytime. You can't work for a top 10 sports section. And again, not to downplay law school, daughter of a lawyer, sister of a lawyer respect what they do. But um, I just remember him telling me that. And it was like, this is an opportunity. Let's see where it goes. So I did not think it w- I would be doing it as long as I have been, or as long as I continue to, in large part because of my Judaism. And it's been really cool to see that rather than being an impediment to working in sports, my Judaism has actually, um, it's really shaped who I am in this industry. And the industry's really embraced it.
0: I want to get that in one second. You mentioned University of Texas. Tell us about your Hillel involvement, but first tell us about the Shaka Smart. What do you think of that move?
1: You know, I, again, going back to like, I like when things work out for the people. If Shaka wasn't going to work out at Texas, I'd love that he could land somewhere else and then they can find their next, um, their next per the coach person. And
0: grabbing so. somebody in Texas, but, but, but what's it called? Coach Beard from Texas. Yeah,
1: and, and, and now he's taken like coaches from like three other schools in Texas. So they're pretty much draining the state, which honestly might not be bad for recruiting. But um, yeah, that, that was that was definitely an interesting move. And then yes, Texas Hillel. So I was pretty involved with Hillel and at Texas. Actually, one of my favorite things I, and your friend Maya, whom I haven't speak highly and I'm speaking to Texas, Max and I are together speaking to Hillels, including Texas Hillel tonight for Yom HaShoah. Maya actually got there after I left. Yeah. Uh, Although we connected when she was in Maryland because I crashed a Maryland alternative spring break trip, <laughs> um, but yeah, so Texas Hillel was amazing, both in terms of giving me a Jewish home, which was really important to me because the first eighteen years of my life, half of my day at least was devoted to mm-hmm. understanding my Judaism, and I really missed that when I went to college, and I have not stopped missing it. And that's why I'm listening to like, I know at an LA, Ed Feinstein. I'll be listening to this year's at like midnight while doing my dishes and folding my laundry. Make
0: sure you get Rabbi Wolpe's in there too.
1: I know, I know. I had some of his clubhouse as well.
0: Yes, yes, Thursday nights at five o'clock or six
1: o'clock. But yeah, so I think one of the the other things I loved about Hillel is they had a social justice program that I was involved with. And I had worked with the homeless community in high school some. And then I had an idea of how I wanted to transition that into my college experience and ended up working with Hillel to mold that so it worked for their program, and I had Hill's institutional support to essentially work with the homeless community in Austin to um, foster I, to expand the homeless newspaper there, where they had a homeless newspaper where pretty much older members of the homeless community were writing for it as a way to express themselves. And through Hill, I helped bring it to the 18 to 30-year-olds, which was so important wow. to these people, not just a place, a way to eat at the drop-in center we were visiting, which was a church right next door to Hill, but also... Um, to show them that we care about what they think and their humanity. Um, so that I'm, I'm thrilled with that. And, and Hillel has continued to do great work. And my brother, who's a senior at Texas, um, definitely loves being a part of it still.
0: So talk about the Judaism piece. I mean, you're working in an industry where, I guess, thank God that games are on Sunday. If it was college football, it would be a little different. But I, I heard a couple of things when you spoke about balancing and You know, I remember as a kid, um, not playing on Shabbat, walking to the games on Shabbat, I went to a secular private school. What I found was that the more, as you said earlier, the more authentic that you are to yourself, actually, the more respect that you get out in the field. Um, What does that look like when you do have to arrange things that other journalists would not have to do based on either Shabbat, Chagim, etc.? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's funny you say like, oh, well, the NFL is mostly on Sunday. That's actually how I ended up in the NFL. That's for us. (laughs) So essentially, I knew I wanted to, to, to go into journalism, or I, I was really interested in going, I want to do like a 1000 things. But I knew that journalism was among those things. And the more I got into sports reporting in college, the more it became apparent that I was a competitive applicant for sports positions, but not for news positions, etc. Because I didn't have experience covering police, cops, courts, etc. Um, so I started just like, begging every single person at the Dallas Morning News to get coffee when I was home for winter break. And I, I joked with my parents, I'd bully them into hiring me that I I would make them grab coffee. So many people grab coffee with me to talk about how I could get it, my foot in the door that they would be like, please just give her a job so we don't have to go to
0: coffee. No, but I think what you're saying is very important. What I've learned, um, not just as a rabbi, but actually as a human being is when you don't ask, you're not going to get something. I don't mean to, uh, if you wish, use the Yiddish word, a schnor, right? Not asking because, but what I'm finding is that when you reach out to people, people want to share their story. And because yes. they have always been in the place where you have been, where I have been. And it's an amazing, I think, lesson that you just said, right? You put, We put ourselves out there, but other people are ready to give back as well.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, And I remember asking the sports editor of the Dallas Morning News, I think it was right after my junior year of, high, of college. And I was like, look, I want to work here. I observe Shabbat. So sunset, Friday to sundown, Saturday, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be working, no phone, no computer, et cetera. Is there still, is it still worth applying for this internship I want to apply for with you or not? Because I can't do the job, I don't want to waste your time, but I would love to find a way to make it work. And he's like, look, we'd have to get creative, but apply and let's see where it goes. And I, I think at first in college, when I was navigating this, and I remember when I worked for Sports Illustrated in New York, which New York has the earliest Shabbats, like I don't understand, <laughs> in the afternoon, and they're like, all right, let's. Let's light candles. And I'm like, we just started Friday. Uh, But but I actually ended up going into the office on Sundays, which worked well for them because the magazine went to print on Monday. So you kind of find these ways. How can you make it an advantage that helps the team more rather than detracts? And that's what I kind of came. The more I got into, I start working at the Dallas Morning News and I actually started it more in a producer role than a reporter, even though they knew I wanted to write, mostly because this internship I had initially applied for was primarily high school football, which happens Friday nights. And it's not discriminatory not to take me. I can't do your job. So Mm -hmm. if I can't do the job, I'm not a good fit. And I kind of realized how heavily it leaned high school football when I first applied. So once I got my foot in the door, they knew I wanted to report something. And they're like, well, why don't we – why don't you go to the Cowboys games when our reporters go and when all of our Cowboys writers go to Cowboys locker room after, you can go talk to the opponent and try and get that Cowboys-centric story, something different. Mm -hmm. And so my goal was like then when that happens – Um, which is a very interesting experience for like a 22 year old woman trying to get like quotes from like angry men who just lost a game who I don't know (laughs) as they're all like showering and trying to get out of there. And I came from a modern Orthodox Jewish day school, but that is a whole aside, definitely an interesting life experience. Um, But my goal was like, how much could I prove that I could be an asset to the team on that in that regard so that I could keep going with it. And then the more I got these opportunities it became less of, I'm sorry that I can't work on these 25 hours, and more, here's a lifestyle decision I've made. All of the work that you're interested in hiring me on the basis of has come with this lifestyle decision. I will work my butt off to validate the decision from Sunday to Friday, but I wanna make sure you're comfortable with it because we need to be transparent enough, right? And before I, when USA Today reached out and we were going through the recruiting process, I said, I wanna make sure we're on the same page with that before you fly me out because. I, that that's part of me. And I remember my editor being so like, yeah, what's the problem? Like we try and give the, our, our reporters at least one day off a week. Yours can be Saturday. And he was so casual. that I was like, did you hear what I said? Um, but I think that's what it came to is just how, and, um, it's probably like the level I try and work. It was probably not sustainable for some days. It's not really sustainable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that's what it became. And then, like you said, there are certainly times where you have to get creative. I know, um, I had super. I had a Super Bowl in Atlanta a couple years ago, where I was going to go to the red carpet event on Saturday afternoon. I walked there. I remember asking someone on the street for directions, and I think they thought I was crazy, like <laughs> wanting to get up on your phone. But I didn't have my nice, phone. Nice. And then I think I actually even brought my C door and finished driving while we were waiting there. So like, love the idea of like at the NFL Honors red carpet. Um, And then I like, I remember my producer being like, so can you hold the microphone if you're not using it? Like, did Moses talk about that at Sinai? And I'm like, just to be safe, let's not. Um, But I think there's been a lot of that. And you just sort of like figure out how to make it work. And I'm so blessed to work for an organization like USA Today that sees my diversity of perspective and background as a strength. And I always Mm -hmm. to that they feel validated in their decision to take that
0: risk yeah it's funny you said you know the early shabbat and i'm thinking on the west coast and being from the east coast you know you look at it that way i say how can like acc basketball be at four in the afternoon so that's the way i look and i say you know what listen b'nai mitzvah we got to go around the pac-12 ucla schedule you know what i mean like i got a seder to do but we also have a final four to talk about (laughs) Um, so Let's go to the more of the, the Kodesh aspect of today, and that's Yom HaShoah. Um, we're gonna share a video right here about your initial meeting with uh, Max Glauben, a Holocaust survivor who uh, you told his story.
1: And I remember yeah. on the last day in Poland, we were in Majdanek, the concentration camp in Poland, which he was deported, and that's where his mother and brother were killed. And he's telling us this story and I don't know if it was the details or what, but he says, oh, I've never told anyone that before. And it was almost a throwaway comment to him. But to me, it was, okay, if he hasn't told anyone this before, this is now my responsibility as a witness to tell that going forward. And I walked beside him the rest of the day in my donic. So that was really the impetus for me feeling like I had this responsibility to share the stories of survivors, particularly, as we say, because my children likely will not have the opportunity to walk in the camps with a survivor. Right. Fast forward.
0: Wow. It gives me the chills just hearing you and seeing there. And I've walked through those same camps as well, uh, leading uh, USY students, in fact, many kids from Dallas in the 2005, 2006. Um, what was the impetus and inspiration to go on March of the Living, first of all? And tell us about that initial meeting with Max as you walk through donic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I feel so blessed to be in a community that really has made March the Living a priority and a focus. Obviously, it takes a lot of resources and it's not a cheap trip, but Yavna Academy of Dallas, the high school I went to here, um, most seniors from Yavna go on the March the Living at the end of their senior year. I mean, COVID's a little bit different, but that was something that was built into the curriculum and that we didn't have school during that time and we had March the Living preparation classes leading up to the year so I went at the end of my senior year in 2012 um I knew of Max my sister had gone on the March of the Living but I didn't really I mean it's just it's I still can't really understand the, the Holocaust so I definitely couldn't before I went on the March um but I just yeah like I mentioned that once Max had made that comment um uh, after telling us one of his stories that he hadn't told that again, I think it, it really clicked and I just started writing everything. So by no means in high school did I think about writing a book. Actually, even the journal I kept, which I tend to, I really like to journal when I travel. I like to journal every day, but I would never stop journaling if I started. So I'm like, I should probably like do what I need to do, not just write about what I need to do. Um, but but one of my freshman year professors, I, I gave a presentation on March the living in, in a class and she's like, do you have all this written down and typed up? And I'm like, kind of Mm -hmm. the journals I took. And then my freshman year, my first semester, she was like, don't do your final paper. You should instead take all the journals you wrote from March the living, put them, create a project out of them, analyze them. The class was about autobiographical impulses in women's writing, which is kind of interesting. Um, And she really inspired me to start that journey of figuring out like, this is a story that I need to be sure I can carry on and that I've preserved.
0: Tell us about your friendship with Max, just as a human being, as a person, um, and what is a, I know there's so many lessons that you've learned through him, and if you have not uh, gotten your copy of the book, just a quick little advertisement, you need to get this book, The Upstander. The foreword is by um, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, very familiar to our Sinai community and the Los Angeles Jewish community, of American Jewish University, and I love how you also go through not just Max, but really his family. Um, it's really fascinating because last night, um, actually on, on Yisker, as, uh, as you saw and your family saw, I had the opportunity to speak about the book and the message that it has through Pesach, but also last night on Yom HaShoah, um, I invited the class that I'm teaching of people who are converting to Judaism, and we shared that story as well. And tonight on Clubhouse, we are doing for our Atid Young Professional Group, um, hearing from grandchildren of survivors, and it, it really goes to what you just said on the video I just shared that our children will not have the opportunity to walk through those camps with survivors. So what is the lesson that you continue to learn through Max? As I know you and Max are now virtually traveling around the country. What are you learning also through the stories that you are sharing with others that you are hearing from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's so much to learn from Max. I think among the lessons are Max is so strong about combating hate. Um, He doesn't want to be angry about what happened. And I think one of the things I've been really thinking about the last week is that cognitive dissonance of we can both completely disagree and strongly abhor what the Nazis did and also not hate them or anyone and not use use hate as a fuel going forward. It's really difficult. And I don't know that I have the capacity to do it at at the depth that Max does it, but he does. And he says, when you hate the hater, Gets the short end of the stick even more than the Haiti, the person who has the hate in them. And that's what he's saying. It's not that he doesn't hate the Nazis because he thinks they don't deserve it. Like that's another question. It's that he thinks that in his quest to survive and to thrive and to show that he could carry on his his family's name and these messages of goodness, he would be selling himself short if he let the hate consume him. And I think that that's a really powerful message. I think also, um, just this idea of like turning your adversity into a source of strength, uh, mm-hmm. that Max not only figured out how to get, create, I mean, obviously there's some luck involved in any survival of the Holocaust, but also mm-hmm. his ingenuity and his fierce determination to survive contributed. But then he didn't just stop. Like he spent the last 30, 40 years of his life committed to really, teaching people this remembrance and how we can combat hate today, how we can embrace diversity, how we can stand up against intolerance, which is why I love that the title of our book is The Upstander, because Max's whole thing is like, yes, the Nazis did this, but also there were so many bystanders in the world who allowed this to happen. And that's the message that this can't, I mean, I hope it never happens to us or anyone again, but it's not, this isn't some like foreign thing that we heard about humanity. Mm -hmm of this and if we're bystanders we risk that happening again so we need to be upstanders and stand up for what we believe in and against what we don't believe in um so those are definitely among the messages but i think max just really has this capacity for joy that's beautiful um, he, he's funny and he is caring um and it's just been a really special friendship that we have some very similar, some very different life experiences and also very similar ones. Um, but definitely in the last five years, we've come to know each other so deeply. And I'm, and I'm so grateful for the trust that he and his family gave me with this memoir. And like you mentioned about the other generations, um, I'm so touched that we were able to explain what it's like to be the child of a Holocaust
0: survivor. Yes. And
1: yes. because that was very
0: this- important for me to read
1: because the second and third generation trauma is real and it's something that's applicable to the Holocaust survivor families and beyond to other victims of trauma or survivors of trauma would be a better word for that. Um, and I think that like, if they're not honest with that, I can't write that because again, this is the story is entirely true or this memoir is entirely true. Um, but I remember one of my professors who was kind enough to review the manuscript for me a couple years ago saying like, you don't have to act like everything's okay at the end of this memoir because mm-hmm. you don't think it is. And it will be stronger if you're more honest. And it was really scary for me because the same way that Max's children wondered how much of this they could engage with their father growing up, I wondered yes. how, at what point can I ask this where, I mean, I'm not asking it selfishly. I'm asking it because I want these to be remembered. But at, how do you balance the pain that that it revisits with the value of these stories being here. And that was something that there's no perfect answer to, but I'm really proud of the way that we pulled it off. And as as I said, in the last couple of weeks, just to have Max still here for the release is so meaningful to me because I spent five years wondering how do you balance doing Max's legacy justice and the perfectionist in me thinking of a thousand different ways I could always make this memoir stronger with also getting a memoir out, God willing, in his lifetime. So shout out to Hashem included in my Shemona Esrei every day for a lot of years. Please keep Max going until we publish this. Um, But but yeah, I think that those are some of the messages. I
0: I think you often talk about in the book, the balance of drawing those stories out, even though he wasn't ready and there were moments that you say you know it seemed like max would whisper to you like okay i'm gonna tell you this or you would go home and he said he would call you or email you like i have a little more to say right you were the journalist i mean that's that's an amazing skill an amazing talent mm-hmm. um what what was that boundary that you had to break down to uh get max to share those stories like you said for us to remember and to see in here
1: right i think a few things i think one it's interesting and this is going a little bit beyond the scope of your question, then I'll circle back. Uh, Like going back to what I mentioned about the work I did with the homeless community during college, one of the the things I learned there, or the muscles I, I I, I guess conditioned there was really putting myself in a Uncomfortable situations and trying to figure out how to build this connection. And that if if I'm not vulnerable, how can I expect my story subject to be? Um, and if I don't if I don't put myself in a situation that's difficult, and so a lot of this one um, sh- like proving to people that you care about them, you're trustworthy. If you say it's not going in the book, it's not going in the book. Like that was that right. was. My- this decision. I could encourage him and explain to him why I think it would make it more powerful and why I wanted that decision, but we, we needed to be on the same page. Um, and I mean, yeah, it, it, it was really interesting trying to build that trust. I think there wasn't one way to do it, but a lot of it was, like you said, just, I, I tend to over report my stories, which drives my editors crazy on deadlines when I'm like, well, I know, but I have like four more hours of, of interviews. It's a
0: long, it's a long drush. It's a long sermon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, but I think that um, kind of like studying for a test, I need to master the material as deeply as possible to be able to convey it in the clearest way possible, and that's a lot of the what this reporting with Max was like. So I think a lot of it was just the more we asked these questions, the more he opened up. We went back on. So I, we initially went on March the Living together in 2012, but in 2017, when we were working on this, we went back on March the Living and oh, wow. yeah staff it as, so I was kind of like an educator for the teens, which was an amazing experience Mm -hmm. to not have the same type of shock level I had the first time I could really Mm -hmm. get through it. But at the same time I could ask Max these questions while we were walking through Auschwitz and Birkenau, while we were at the mausoleum in Maidonic or the the Tons of Ashes. Um, So that opened up different things. And then I think the more Max was able to, I, I mean, and I hope this is, I think the more Max was able to see that, I cared about him beyond the scope of this book. Like I wanted to show up on his and Frida's anniversary with flowers and celebrate that. And I'm excited to hear like what, what new word their latest great grandkid had to say. And and that's what I, what I do with all of my reporting is that you have to show people you care beyond the scope of the story for them to really be willing to open up in the actual story. Yeah,
0: I love the, the, when he said, my grandchild is Madison. Medicine? What kind of name medicine? I just thought the it was a beautiful way of capturing who he was. Tell us yeah. a little about about his wife, Frida, because she's not a Holocaust survivor. And often we see survivors marrying survivors because they went through that same trauma and then they recreate. But here were two very different people. I remember him saying in the book that he didn't know how to be a father because he lost that part of his childhood from his parents. How does that moment of besharedness look like between him and Frida? And I just on his honeymoon, he says, you know, well, let me tell you what I went through. That's not a normal honeymoon. No, what does their relationship look like uh, that you can tell that's just a beautiful love story?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the, the most, one of the best moments in the reporting of this book was the day that Frida brought out the letters when they were courting each other. Yeah,
0: that was amazing.
1: Because something we learn about Holocaust survivors, not to generalize, but many of them, I mean, they had to develop this shell to protect themselves from these awful atrocities that they were exposed to over and over and over again. So once you have that shell, it's kind of like to be vulnerable and to love and to express yourself is difficult because you got to break through the shell to get back to that capacity that I sitting here as a 26-year-old who's lived in a safe, free country my entire life, Mm -hmm. uh, it's more natural to me. And so I think being able to see in those letters, the moments where they did break through those shells to tell each other um, was really special. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny relationship. Even now Uh, they they bicker in a beautiful way. (laughs) Um, But I think that they care deeply about each other. They care care deeply about the values that they built their family with. Um, It wasn't always easy their marriage or their parenting or even their grandparents necessarily. But I think that both of them are so strong for what they've been through. And they figured out how to combine those strengths to build this incredible family. And they now have three children, seven grandchildren and three great grandchildren. One, another thing that was amazing. and I felt like I wanted to write a whole another book today that Frida told me this was hearing about Frida's, Upbringing in South Dallas um, mm-hmm. as a Jewish community, I, she thought it was normal for people to throw rocks at Jews because that's what happened to her growing up. That people would like start calling her a Jew and throwing rocks. I have not. I I've had a couple comments here and there in my life, and that was interesting when I would go to a basketball camp that wasn't a day school camp growing up. And I remember actually I had a comment. It was I must have been in middle school when someone at the at the basketball camp here said like, "You're Jewish. Like you're too pretty to be Jewish." And I'm like. Mm-hmm. What kind of backhand compliments that? And I care way more about Judaism than my looks. Um, but but I think it was just interesting. Like I certainly have not been in a situation where someone's throwing rocks at me because of my religion, and that really? was that was happening here too. And I think that you take all of their different backgrounds and remember that even though there's no comparison to the Holocaust, they both had these, yeah. these difficulties in their past that they brought into the relationship. And both of them, I, one of the reasons it might work is both of them really wanted to, especially in the first 30 years of the marriage, look forward and, 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 and not look back. But now that mm. we're looking back, it's been really powerful.
0: So uh, one light question and then one uh, concluding question about what we can do as the next generation. Uh, number one, is Max a sports fan, Cowboys fan? Has he gone with you to the stadium or how does that work or is that not part of his life?
1: He has not gotten me to the stadium, but he is a sports fan. He'll call me and let me know what he thinks of the games and what he wants me to call Dak <laughs> or Jerry Jones or whomever. Um, and, yeah, he, he certainly follows it along, which is which is fun, and it's fun to hear his takes on it or if he reads my articles. Um, so perhaps we, we will get there one day. I have told a, a couple of the Cowboys about my my project with him um, and it's been really interesting to hear their responses to it. Um, I, I remember actually one time I was on Oxnard, California, where the Cowboys hold their training camp. This would have been summer 2019. Um, and I was talking to Amari Cooper, the Cowboys receiver, and he was like, oh, how was your summer? What were you up to? Wow. And was kind of this moment where I'm like, okay, you and I can be like, oh, nothing, or I can – say what mm-hmm. I was up to and what I was up to was finishing Max's memoir and again this goes back to the authenticity that my job is not to put myself in the story and I think hopefully readers of the memoir realize that but until the author's note I'm not like a character in the story even though I'm right. the third person narrator but if I'm not honest with who, like the more I can be honest the more players feel like they can be honest and I remember saying I was like actually I was working on a book project I, I, I just finished the manuscript for and Amari goes well what's the book about um and I told him it was the memoir of a Holocaust survivor. And he was like, oh, like, how did he survive? Did he meet Hitler? How did? Have you oh. met him? Where does he live now? He lives in Dallas. Like, I was asking me all these questions. And that's one of the most meaningful things to me is to see what other people care about. And that was yeah. one of the ways I researched this book was I would go to Max's speeches, not because I wanted to know where he was born, what camps he went to and how he survived, but because I would take notes and say like, This is when the audience was like, oh, my gosh. This was when the audience was moved, Mm. when the audience thought it was funny, and almost this, like, analysis of what my readers would want. And similarly, Max has an interactive digital testimony with the show of us where you can ask essentially holographic Max a question, and the artificial intelligence and natural language processing will queue up one of 1,146 answers he gave them. And I talked to the people from the show of foundation, and I said, what questions have been asked the most or what um, what answers have come up the most? And then when I learned that people were wondering, had Max experienced anti-Semitism or intolerance in the United States? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, well, then I need to make sure, like I had mentioned it almost in passing before. Yeah, the I,
0: Alabama piece.
1: That's a hun- Exactly. Yes. When Max was in Alabama in the 1950s, As a shoe salesman, the KKK was putting stickers on his box saying, KKK, don't buy from a Jew. And that was something that there was just so much for Max's story that I I need those abilities where I can see more clearly what people what's going to resonate. And things like the Shilla Foundation um, and going to his speeches and talking to players like Amari allow me to see here's what other people connect with in this overwhelming story. So
0: is there ever a moment then this coming year that you can talk to the Cowboys and say, I want to, I want Max to talk to the team. Is there yeah. a moment there that that can happen to I me? Mean, look at anti-Semitism. actually this past year, for instance, in the NBA, Steven Jackson, right? When that yeah. happened, Rabbi Wolpe went on Instagram on
1: yeah. um,
0: that Thursday night, and they had a conversation together. And Rabbi Wolpe asked him, what can I do for the Black community And he asked Rabbi Wolpe, what can I do for the Jewish community? Is there a moment now that you have written this book and somebody's asking what it's called, The Upstander by Jory Epstein, um, that you can say, I've written this. I'm an established NFL reporter. This is an important message for athletes to understand.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the way I see it is I'm definitely very open. Like you said, I'm not putting these two parts of my life in separate boxes. My Judaism and now my role in in helping preserve Max's testimony are a part of who I am. And if you want my Twitter, my Instagram, et cetera, which are my professional accounts, that is a part of it. What I have to figure out um, is where the conflict of interest comes in because let's say we do that and then the Cowboys are like, great, we wanna buy a book for everyone on the team then is that an ethical issue with my bosses about how it shapes my reporting going forward, whether I think it will or not? So that's where I have to figure it out. But I definitely have goals of how I want to combine the two, particularly because, I mean, I cover a team where Dak Prescott, the quarterback is like the king of turning his adversity into strengths. He, he lost his mom. He grew up as a, in a biracial family in Louisiana in a trailer park, poor. His mom was pretty much raising him. She died of colon cancer in college. His brother died by suicide just about a year ago after caretaking for their mom. He had this injury last year. We weren't sure if it was going to be the end of his career. Thank God it's, it doesn't appear to be. Um, and his whole thing is like turning that your adversity into your strength and viewing it as like, this is how God is allowing me to show people where I can go. And, and you talk about faith, actually. Um, Before Dak's mom died, Dak was one of three, so now two of them are still here, unfortunately, because Jace died by suicide last year. But he gave each of them a message, and it was faith, fight, and finish were her three messages to her sons. And that was something they talked about in the eulogy, Um, and I've talked to the pastor who gave that eulogy, which was a beautiful one after Peggy died. Um, And Dak was faith, and he carries that with him everywhere, Hmm. and he has it. I want to say, I'm trying to remember. I think he's got, like, fight and finish tattooed, and then he would he writes faith on the wristband of, or on his, like, sweatband before going into games. But, like, that is his role in, in the family, to be that faith. And it has been unwavering. So when you talk about the overlaps between Max and Dak, and, again, different backgrounds, different adversities. But I think that that's one of the things I like about what, where the progress we've made as society in the last year or two is we've realized it's not about, like, who has it worse or how they had it worse. Like it's mm-hmm. all of us have dealt with adversity in different ways. All of us have the capacity to be strong. And how can we learn from each of the ways we've done that to all be stronger together? And so that's why, even though it's not like a comparison, I do see a lot of similar values and, and, and character traits and how they're strong between Max.
0: Well, I know that you are going to be an amazing shlicha, not just to the Cowboys, but to the NFL, to the Jewish community, but also really outside to the Jewish community as well. Um, last question back to the, uh, the whole, to the ordinary, to the secular LA Rams, what's going to happen here in LA this year, Rams chargers. What do you have for us?
1: It's a great question. I mean, it'll be fun to see what Stafford can do. Um, and Sean McVay, I mean, you still have one of the best minds in football. It's interesting to see how he applies that plus a defense that's really strong. I don't really understand how they acquire their assets because they have like the strangest front office dealings and kind of the best way that I'm pretty sure they're never going to draft a player again with everything they've given up, but it's kind of, be... um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's exciting. I think the chargers have a lot to look forward to also Justin Herbert totally exceeded my expectations last year and that was fun to watch. And it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I actually was in LA last September for the Cowboys at Rams Sunday night football season opener, which is the first game at SoFi. So I'm hoping yeah. that you all get into SoFi this year because that was a really weird, like the, the stadium was like incredible, even having seen Jerry World here. Um, but I'm like, this is empty. Like, and like people don't get like when you're sitting in the press box, you're not, you're not like hearing the broadcast naturally anyway. So I'm like, I'm just watching this football game that's like, all these people are watching around the world on Sunday night football, but like it's completely silent in the stadium and in this press box, not completely, but uh, yeah, but I think it's, they've got two really exciting teams. It'll be fun for LA um, and fun for Southern California sports fans. The same way all have embraced your college football for years. There's a lot of exciting NFL football for LA right now as well.
0: Well, I do hope that if you are out here for training camp in Oxnard or when the uh, Rams play, the uh, Rams or Chargers play the Cowboys, I don't think they're on the schedule this year, Mm -hmm. that you will also find a uh, home at Arshul. We'll make sure we save either an Aliyah, a Haftorah, something for you. We would love to um, have your voice heard within our community, but most importantly, we as a Sinai Temple community and really as a Jewish community, especially on this sacred moment and day of Yom HaShoah, We are just uh, thankful and grateful for what you do to bring not just the life of Max to us, but the life of so many other stories who will never be told. Um, So a todaraba and a really a thank you. Um, I don't usually end uh, the rabbi on the sidelines this way, um, but we say that truly the memories of the souls that have been lost on and during that treacherous and just difficult time in our history should be a blessing for all time and we'll say amen um coming up next week we have a double dose of rabbi on the sidelines on tuesday coach matt doherty former coach of north carolina author of the newly released book rebound from pain to passion north carolina new coach hubert davis he'll be discussing those aspects and on thursday ESPN bracketologist Joe Lunardi already looking forward to next year's NCAA tournament and March Madness. Join us next episode on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Thank you so much to Jory Epstein, USA Today, Dallas Cowboys NFL reporter, and most importantly, author of this amazing memoir, The Upstander, story of Max Glauben. Have a wonderful week.
1: Thanks very much,